The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. Hello and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. With me in studio, Jennifer Bray, Harry McGee and Pat Leahy. Welcome to you all. And we are... What a silent response. Let me try that again. (laughs) Welcome to you all. Hello, Hugh. That's better. Thank you. And and we are gathered here today for our special post-general election Ask Us Anything podcast. You mailed your questions into politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. Some of you DM'd me directly on Twitter with them as well. And we got loads and loads and loads of questions. So thanks to you all. We could easily do a three-hour podcast based on them. But it has been a long four weeks and we don't want to end on a note of discord with our long-suffering producers, Suzanne and Declan. Uh, I do have to say that it's been brilliant putting all these shows together over the last month and it's great that you guys seem to have enjoyed them so much. So here's a selection of your questions and here's the first one. Hey guys, this is Addie, originally from Portland, Oregon in the US, so now I live in Madrid and I was wondering if you could do a super chill, super casual, I'm sure super easy overview of the Irish political system for significant others of the Irish. Um, I've been listening to almost every election daily podcast. I have watched canvassing videos. I even Googled Taoiseach because that seemed important. But I still feel like I'm missing some important bits. Too many to ask, ask specific questions. So if you could fit that in somewhere, that would be phenomenal. Thanks, guys. And thanks, Ali. That's an easy question to start with. Listen, we are not going to give you a full overview of the whole Irish political system you know, as part of our first question of this Ask Us Anything podcast. But it does raise a good point, I think, Pat. We have expanded our audience over the last four weeks. A lot more new people are coming in. Uh, we've always had a substantial audience outside Ireland, and I suspect that it's a it's a good deal bigger now. And it's great that those people are listening. But sometimes I think that... Uh, People are crit- critical of journalists like us sometimes. They say that we uh, we underestimate the intelligence of our readers and we overestimate their knowledge. And sometimes it is good to give the overview, like the Sinn Féin um, uh, overview that we did with Simon Carswell earlier this week. And, uh, and this is really me lecturing myself. Maybe we should do... <laughs> Carry a, on. Maybe we should do a few more things like that. What do you think? I've no idea what a super chill overview of the election is, but maybe another way of looking at it would be to say if the historians writing a compendium of Irish history in 100 years' time were to give, uh, were to give a, their verdict on this election or uh, place it in the context of the time, what would they say? And I think they would say that the fragmentation and dealignment of Irish politics, that was possibly underway during the 90s, but at a slow pace and was turbocharged in the late 2000s by the financial crisis, that that continued in this election. So I think the 2011 election, the 2016 election and now the 2020 election were all different from all the elections that went previous because they reflected a society that was changed fundamentally by the financial crisis. And I think that this election is part of that process of politics catching up with those changes 
in society. And I suppose in that respect, it would fit as, you know, as part of a set with maybe the uh, same-sex marriage referendum vote, with the abortion referendum vote, which is politics catching up in a way with changes in society. So those changes reflecting a more diverse society, a more fractured uh, society politically. So we see, you know, the, the decline of the big parties in what seems to me is probably an historical trend that is likely to continue and the rise of parties of the left and small parties uh, but like like uh, parties of the left like Sinn Féin and small parties like the others. My God, you actually did it. Well, well done, Pat. I'm not sure how super chill it was, but it definitely was an overview. So listen, thank you for that. We'll move straight along to the next question. This is from Michael in the North Inner City. Hello to the Inside Politics team. Well done on an excellent uh, daily series for the general election. Um, I admire Irish politicians and I think they get more criticism and suffer from more cynicism than they deserve and I wanted to ask the team if over your coverage of of this general election when you were spending so much time with Irish politicians uh, in general um, did your admiration grow or did your cynicism grow? Now, this is an interesting one. You guys all hang around with politicians all the time, a lot more than I do. I was only let out once during the four weeks and I chaired a hustings about arts policy with the various spokespeople. And uh, one of the people I met on that was Malcolm Byrne, who had been through four different, would have been through four different elections, uh, was, it may almost historically have had the shortest run in the Dáil because he won the by-election and then lost in the general election. Very nice fellow, seemed to me. Um, very committed to what he did. And my God, he's been bumped around the place by the system. What do you think? Do you think politicians get a get a raw deal or an unfair deal, Jen? That seems like a totally different question to the one that was asked because um, whether they get a raw deal or not, when you put yourself up for a job like that, you're going to have to expect a above average level of criticism, um, scrutiny, all of that. That's what comes with the job. That's fine. Um, but I think in regards to the question about whether our admiration grew for, for politics and politicians... Here's the thing. I think that the vast majority of politicians are decent skins. I think they're good people who are in it for the right reasons. You might not like someone's personality. You might not agree with their policies. But the vast majority, are the vast majority, some of them obviously you, you have questions about, but the vast majority are in it for the right reasons. And over, over the course of covering the election campaign, I think that actually my admir- I don't know, admiration is the word, but maybe respect for them grew because it is an incredibly difficult job you're putting yourself up there. It's endless hours, especially on the campaign trail. And, you know, there's not a lot of thanks that, that go with it. Um, and it's not even just the politicians, it's their staff. So, you know, I remember when I started uh, covering politics, I thought, God, these politicians give PA jobs. What a cushy number for people around them. And then having got to know a lot of them and seeing the work that they do, I have a huge amount of respect for them too. Mm-hmm. Often thankless work, doing, you know, writing speeches, doing all the research for their deputies, dealing with their deputies' terrible moods. I'm sure plenty of that going on and then kind of taking a lot of flack for, from the public as well. So it's not just politicians, it's their staff too. And I would have a lot of respect for anybody who has the gumption to put themselves forward for politics. Um, now, the, uh, in relation to scrutiny, that's a whole different, different ballgame. Well, there is that. But Harry, and thank you, Jen, for pulling me back on to the question that Michael actually asked. I suppose that it, the, the core of it is, is that an election campaign itself is the moment of white heat, which can reveal character uh, for good or ill. And I suppose the question is what you, know, what you might have seen over the course of the campaign in relation to that. 
Yeah, I mean, my admiration or cynicism um, neither grew nor declined during the election because I've been around politics for 20 years and kind of know a little bit like what Jen's answer was. I kind of know what politicians are and what they're about. And I think on an individual basis, I'd admire most of them. I think to be a politician, to be a good politician, you have to have particular characteristic and traits. You don't have to be a particularly nice person, but I think that you have to be a public person and a person who is able to, to stand up and represent people or represent groups or represent a particular point of view. So uh, it's, uh, and that takes a particular skill. I think another skill that is uh, required of any politician is infinite patience. Uh, most politicians, especially rural ones in our, Ireland, we have a very clientelist system uh, that depends on presentalism, especially in rural constituencies. They have to have infinite patience and infinite time. So you have a TD who comes up to Dublin for three days every week and then goes down to their constituency. But once they go down to their constituency, it doesn't mean that they can kick off the shoes, sit down and look at Sky TV sports for the whole of the weekend. They have to go to a round of uh, meetings. Sometimes they have to go to funerals. And uh, people are cynical about politicians going to funerals. But then you have the, 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 the paradox of that is that other people expect politicians to be present at funerals. So they're caught in a, a quandary in that relation. And it's a very hard profession. And I, I really get annoyed when people say, well, I voted for him and I didn't see him from one end of the year to the other until he came around looking for another vote. Uh, that really annoys me, that type of cynicism. And the other cynicism that kind of annoys me is that politicians are grabbers and takers and in there for themselves. That might have been the way with some politicians in the past, but it's certainly not the way anymore. And there's no other profession in which people have to put themselves up uh, for just essentially to hold on to their job every five years. And if we look at the attrition rate in this particular uh, election, Hugh, so many TDs lost their seats, you know, and they go from hero to zero in the space of 24 hours. So I, I've, I, I, on an individual basis, I admire all politicians because I think they put in a lot of hours. Uh, it's, a, it's an often thankless job. And at the end of the day, the only praise they get for it is to be booted out by the electorate. Pat, the... the Spectator journalist Isabel Hardman wrote a book last year about the pressures on British politicians, which I think are slightly different from the ones that Harry's talking about there. That works in a different way. But the outcome of those pressures was uh, unhealthy lifestyles, um, psychiatric problems, broken marriages, kind of all kinds of awful un- unhappiness, and really people who weren't necessarily that good at their jobs at the end of it because of all those kinds of things. Are there similar pressures or are they different in the Irish context? I think the Irish system is perhaps a little more forgiving. Um, We have politicians, it always amuses me when politicians are accused of being out of touch uh, with, with voters. Our electoral system demands that every politician from the Taoiseach down be constantly in touch with his or her voters because if they're not in touch with their voters and are not receptive to their needs and their wishes they'll be turfed out. We have a hyper-responsive political system. Perhaps too responsive, you could uh, uh, you could argue. And most people within it act rationally. So the politicians who, as Harry says, go to funerals, uh, look to sort out medical cards for their constituents, etc., etc. They're acting rationally because if they don't do that, the chances are, in most cases, they uh, they won't be they won't be elected. Whether that is the best political system to pick legislators, people who look after 
national politics, people who guide the leadership of the country, is a proposition that it seems to me is very open to question indeed. But whatever system, whatever electoral system we have, I think the voters would use it to get the sort of politicians they want and to get those politicians to do whatever it was they wanted. Just one more point to add to that is that I think it's important to distinguish for us in our coverage of politics as well, but also for people who consume that coverage, to draw a distinction between a cynical view of politics, which I think, I hope we don't have here, and a sceptical view of politics. People often mistake those two things. A cynic believes the worst of every person and every situation, and I don't think that's what we do. But the sceptic doesn't always take what they say at face value and seeks to probe and investigate them. We've already run into the, the problem, which I knew was going to arise in this, and that the, the questions are so interesting and the answers are so long that we're not going to get through enough of them. Just, so I'm going to ask just, for... Just too super chill today, Hugh. I'm I just want to ask super chill away there, Harry. Uh, I just want to ask one person to take this question because it's much more specific in a way. Uh, it's Bailey and Westmeath who asks the, about the SOC Dem, saying they had a great election and got six TDs. Will they go the way of Sinn Féin, in other words, steady growth, or Solidarity PPP, which is steady decline? Does their geographical spread and their new personalities offer them the potential for a genuine future? Do you want to, I'll just do that very quickly. Um, steady growth and steady decline are not really characteristics of the Irish political system. You can get dramatic growth and dramatic uh, decline also, as we have seen in recent elections from 2011 onwards, including this election, uh, with the dramatic growth of Sinn Féin, the dramatic decline of both uh, Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil. Small parties have had a very bitty um, uh, history in Irish politics. Uh, many have, have been established and shone brightly for a while and then gone into steep uh, decline. Uh, the, I think for the SOC Dems, I think their future will probably be aligned to the future of the Labour Party. And I think that one or other will merge into the other. There might be a kind of a, a backdoor takeover of Labour by SOC Dems or it could happen the other way. But to me, they seem to be too closely aligned in terms of their uh, politics, their their stance on the on the political spectrum and their outlook. And I think in the long term, I think if the SOC Dems is going to be have a future, my own guess is that it might be closely aligned to that of the Labour Party. And this next question is from David. My question is about support among first-time voters for Sinn Féin. So those who changed their vote to Sinn Féin or came out for the first time to vote for Sinn Féin at this election. I wonder if some of those voters saw in Sinn Féin a chance to vote for radical change, but thought that perhaps with only 42 candidates, the real likelihood of a Sinn Féin-led government was quite small. So in a way, voting for radical change without really expecting to get it, would perhaps some of that support disappear if, let's say, in a couple of months there were another election and Sinn Féin in that case would presumably put forward more candidates and so the chance of a Sinn Féin-led or even a Sinn Féin government would become an even greater reality. Would some of those voters perhaps think twice about their vote or are they really steadfast in their support for a Sinn Féin government? It's an interesting question, Jen. I mean, albeit a completely speculative one because we don't know the answer to it, but that never stopped us before. And um, I think of the UK election in 2017 when there was a lot of speculation after Labour's unexpectedly good result that one of the contributory factors to that was that nobody expected them to win and that what they wanted to do was put a stop to Theresa May's gallop and so that they thought that they could safely, quote unquote, vote for Labour without having Jeremy Corbyn as Prime Minister. 
Yeah, um, and it isn't, like you say, it is an entirely speculative thing. I mean, I gaze into my crystal ball, which has been known to be incredibly faulty over the years. Mystic Jen. Mystic Jen is not always quite so mystic. But um, I, I think if you look at the reasons why a lot of people moved to Sinn Féin or a lot of people maybe lent them their vote, um, it's because of the two crises in health and in housing. That's what the vast majority of people, especially under the age of, of 35, um, and the basis on which they were voting for Sinn Féin were indeed the, the most important reason um, that determined their vote. I think we saw that uh, in the various exit polls. Um, and I think as long as those crises exist and as long as people feel aggrieved by them and as long as people are affected by them, and remember it's everybody who's affected. It used to be this idea that it was just younger people who were renting. Now it's families of you know, two or three generations living in, in one house. There's a, obviously a homeless crisis with record figures. And then anybody over the age of 65, we saw that in the exit polls as well, that for anybody over the age of 65, the, the biggest issue for them was health. And that's understandable. And I think as long as those issues uh, persist and remain that way, um, then I think those voters will stay with Sinn Féin. And Sinn Féin also have the big mo. They've got the momentum behind them at the moment. And you would have to wonder that if we do have another election, which with every day is looking kind of increasingly likely unless someone breaks a pre-election pledge. Um, and they do run twice as many candidates. If this continues along the way it has gone up to up to now, they would have a really good chance at getting maybe not the, what's needed for a majority, but enough to go in and yeah, form a what government. What are the chances of, of, of that, Pat? Because it, it's kind of twisting the question around the other way, I suppose, really. Um, they have the momentum, as we've seen, and we saw it, definitely. We saw their, their their poll numbers increase over the course of the last couple of months. They left about 10 seats behind. If the momentum increased and they had the correct number of seats to take advantage of that. It's only a couple of weeks ago that we were talking about Fianna Fáil getting well into the 50s or the high 50s on the back of a 27-28% of the vote. If Sinn Féin found themselves there, they could be there or beyond, could they? Congratulations for the first truism of the uh, of the podcast. I so don't far. think it is, but if anyway. They, well, if Sinn Féin gets more votes, it, it will have a more successful election. That is true. So what is the real question, I suppose, is what are the chances of them, were there to be a second election or an election in the medium term future, of them holding on to those votes, which I think is what they, um, holding on and growing, and growing those votes. I think Jen is right that it's driven, a lot of that vote is driven by the dynamics of this campaign. Also for that mood for change, which was rooted in dissatisfaction. It's not just voters decided that change was going to be the theme of this election. It's that mood for change was rooted in their dissatisfaction at the current government's performance in uh, in key uh, in key areas. But uh, so, but just as and we spoke about the dealignment of voters earlier on, just as those voters swung in their great in great numbers towards Sinn Fein in this election. They are swingable in other directions, perhaps towards the Greens, perhaps if solutions aren't found to the the, the housing crisis in particular, towards those parties of the more radical left. So I think, you know, Sinn Féin has momentum at the moment. If they are squeezed out of government, as seems to be becoming more likely, then they will build political capital on that, both in protests outside Leinster House, I suspect, and within the uh, and within the House itself. But there is nothing inevitable, I suppose, is what I'm saying about uh, Shin, about a further rise for Sinn The other thing as well is if there was another election, you would have to wonder about the people who didn't turn out to vote. Would there be people who look at the result and go, 
oh my God, you know, I never want to see a Sinn Féin government. And there are a lot of people who said that in the polls that we saw, you know, I never want to see a Sinn Féin government. Would they be then motivated? Okay, I'm going to get out and cast my vote. People who normally wouldn't. You'd have to wonder about that kind of knockback effect. Is knockback the word I'm looking for? You know what I mean? It'll work. It'll work. It'll have to do, guys. Because the polls, the pre-election polls showed Mm. that... Sinn Féin was the least popular party in terms of people's choice for government. Yeah, of the they're the Marmite three. party. Yeah, so you'd wonder to how many extent, people will, co- will then come out and say, I better use my vote. Harry. Yeah, well, the question people have been asking uh, really is um, if there is an election in quick succession, if there is an election soon, uh, what, what the outcome of that will be. And there's been a view and a widespread view that's grown uh, that Sinn Féin left a lot of seats behind on the 8th of February and can quickly make gains. I think that's probably a likely scenario, but it's not necessarily the only scenario. I think the other parties didn't have thought-out strategies in relation to ward off the Sinn Féin threat. And I think, as our questioner is saying, that people might have second... People might be surprised at the extent of the Sinn Féin success. And certainly within that 24-25% of the vote, there's an element of a soft vote. And that soft vote will go to Sinn Féin now... It could stay with Sinn Féin, but could go uh, away. But if you were to ask me, do I see Sinn Féin growing? I think if an election was held within uh, the next six months, uh, if there was no successful outcome, I think they would add to their uh, level of seats. But in terms of long-term growth, uh, I, I think the party will incrementally grow. But I think that this dramatic growth that we've seen in this election uh, will not be reprised and other parties will be able to kind of make up some of that ground. OK, here's another slightly related sort of question from Owen Ryan. Owen is a Leaving Cert politics student from Cork. How long has there been politics on the Leaving Cert? Does anybody know? Long. It's so long since we did the Leaving Cert. Uh, well, that's you. true. Jennifer might know. Uh, I'm, I'm actually not as young as I look. I just have really good face cream. <laughs> Anyway. We need to get some of that, Harry. Owen, Owen is an actual Leaving Cert politics student from Cork and he was wondering uh, if Fianna Fáil were to go into coalition with Sinn Féin, would any Fianna Fáil TDs leave the party? I don't think any would leave the party, but I think that the aristocracy in the party, which happens to come from Cork at the moment, uh, would have to be displaced. I'd find it very hard to see Micheál Martin leading Fianna Fáil into a coalition with Sinn Féin, given the trenchancy of his stance against coalition it would take a U-turn of our gargantuan proportions and a huge loss of credibility. No, I'm not saying that it, that he won't do it. I, I, I actually, agree, actually agree with that. I, I, I don't think it's, I don't think it's on the, <laughs> I don't think it's on the cards at all. And actually, I think if you look at, there are certainly voices, and we heard Eamon O'Keefe today talk about it. There are certainly voices in the party who would favour a move towards. Uh, towards Sinn Féin in terms of coalition. But my best assessment at at this point, I don't know what you guys think, but my best assessment is that there is an overwhelming majority, both in the parliamentary party and in the organisation as a whole, that are opposed to, fiercely opposed, many of them, to any coalition with Sinn Féin. Does that mean necessarily that they will wear a coalition with Fine Gael? No, it doesn't. I think that's something we can only judge at the end of this process. But right now, I don't think Fianna Fáil is going next or near a coalition with Sinn Féin. No. So we'll take another question now. Hi there. My name is Aidan and I have a two-part question for the panel about Sinn Féin transfers. During the selection we saw, at least on the East Coast, Sinn Féin transfers seriously boosting left-wing candidates in many, many constituencies. However, the mantra of vote left, transfer left, that was so often repeated on Twitter, was not replicated everywhere in Ireland. So my question is this. What does the panel think about urban Sinn Féin transfers versus rural Sinn Féin transfers? And secondly, 
if a second election is called and Sinn Féin run more candidates in the country, do you foresee vote left, transfer left remaining in play? Or will it be scrapped in favour of Sinn Féin looking for every single TD they can muster? Thank you very much. Well, Aidan is right, isn't he? There was a different pattern. It's partly because perhaps there weren't strong left-wing candidates in some of those more rural constituencies. But there is a different pattern visible between the urban and the rural Sinn Féin transfers. Yeah, and there are, there are two types of Sinn Féin supporter. You have the, the more modern iteration, which would be a left-wing uh, supporter, and then the more traditional Republican supporter. Uh, and you'd see more of those in border areas. The the vote left, transfer left uh, pattern was very, very evident in urban areas. So if we look at Dublin South Central, for example, uh, Angus O'Snoddy uh, was elected with a huge surplus. And most of that surplus went with, and I hate using this metaphor, which in fame I'm going to use, with military precision uh, to people before profit and to Breach Smith. So much so that she doubled her vote uh, essentially in the second count and was elected on the second count. And we saw that pattern replicated in Dublin constituencies in Cork North Central, uh, where it helped McBarry get elected and in many other urban constituencies. In rural constituencies, it was a little bit more complicated, but it was also evident. So Donegal would be a very good example of that, where you had the two big power blocks there, Fianna Fáil and Sinn Féin, both of whom expected to get two seats at the expense of a left-wing independent, Thomas Pringle. But the net effect of the Sinn Féin surplus in both constituencies was that while he transferred, uh, while Pierce Doherty transferred in big numbers to Pat Cope Gallagher, who was geographically close to him, uh, Sinn Féin also transferred in huge numbers to Pringle. And that allowed Pringle get over the line. Not only that, they transferred to other kind of left-leaning candidates in other constituencies and their subsequent transfers helped uh, people of the left get over the line. A good example of that would be in Kilkenny, Carlo Kilkenny, where Fianna Fáil were hoping to get three out of five. And ultimately, they, that, that attempt was thwarted by Kathleen Funchen's transfers that ultimately went, went to a People Before Profit uh, candidate, Adrian Wallace. And then they went on to Malcolm, Malcolm Noonan of the Greens, who, is, yeah. who got a kind of a proxy vote from, from the left. Uh, the, the only time uh, you saw Sinn Féin uh, transfers coming into play uh, when they weren't going left Uh, was when the Sinn Féin candidate hadn't done as well and wasn't going to get elected. And the only other two candidates left in the field were from Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael. And in those instances, uh, Sinn Féin did transfer far more heavily towards Fianna Fáil, as one would expect, because they both come from a Republican tradition. And a good example of that uh, would be Dunlira, uh, where the Sinn Féin transfers ultimately helped Cormac Devlin get over the line at the expense of Mary Mitchell O'Connor. Although you also saw transfers going, say, to strong independent candidates like Verona Murphy in Wexford, for example. Uh, Verona Murphy isn't exactly on the left, as far as I can see. No, but I think the left trend was evident in, in urban areas, but it was also evident in rural areas, but not as much in rural, rural areas. And Verona Murphy is a good example uh, of it. The other phenomenon that was evident was it was a huge anti-Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael election where neither the both parties were transfer toxic. So you would see all of the parties on the left transferring to any other imaginable candidate uh, other than Fianna Fáil. And we saw some absolute contradictions happening. For example, the Aintu candidate in Cork North Central, who would be pro-life, transferring more to Mick Barry, who would be very, very staunchly pro-choice. Uh, in, in greater numbers than they were transferring to either Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael. That's what gave you that on all day on Monday when things got worse and the second day of the count things got worse and worse and worse for both Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael because they couldn't buy a transfer sure. in the it was, later It was counts. an anti-Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael vote. Any, any, anyone but them, the, basically. That, 
that to me that was the overriding message from this election was anti-Fianna Fáil, anti-Fine Gael first okay. and then Sinn Féin gains second. And the second. second part of that question is if we do have an election in the not too distant future and the pattern is somewhat like we have just seen, does that not mean that Sinn Féin have a better uh, seat strategy and all those PBP seats get lost and you have second yeah, Sinn Féin TDs? If, if Sinn Féin had run a second candidate in any of those constituencies where people prefer profit and, uh, and solidarity stood, with the exception of Dun Lira, uh, they, they would have won those seats. It's an interesting point that they cannibalised the left whereas Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael wouldn't be in such danger from the... Uh, they would in individual constituencies, obviously, but in the picture as a whole, they would be in much less danger than the candidates of the left. OK, our next question is... I'm going to have to direct it to you, Pat, but um, I think you guys shouldn't snigger in the background, but uh, maybe you can tell us the truth after Pat gives the official answer. It's from Cleon O'Neill, who would like to know how the Irish Times prepares for an election. <laughs> Are there plans in place that can be put into action at any stage, like a large red envelope to rip open in case of a general election? Or do you permanently have an intern locked away updating research and stats and political anecdotes? Pat, what's the plan? (laughs) Actually, um, this was my first general election in the Irish Times and uh, I was amazed at the level of careful and thorough preparation that uh, has been going on quietly in the background for about, uh, about six months now. So luckily when... The uh, so when the election was called, we were able to press the button on uh, on our plan and basically sit back then for the next <laughs> three weeks and watch it as it was perfectly executed. What happened after the button was pressed? Did the, the, so well, then we a, had to, a joker jump out we, of a box. We, we had to, we had to switch the machine off and start to switch it on again. No, in seriousness, um, obviously we had we had talked about it a good deal among ourselves. We had some plans in place about what needed to be done in advance. I think we all came back after uh, after Christmas with the realisation, a fairly kind of sudden realisation that a general election was likely and we could be in a campaign. I was recuperating from pneumonia as it happens in the week after Christmas when it kind of dawned on me that we were more likely than not to be in a general election campaign the, the following week. So obviously there was a bit of a scramble Uh, to put plans in place. But more or less, we knew what we wanted to do. It was a matter of breaking it down about who was going to do what. There were some things that we hadn't done here before that we wanted to do. Such as the the podcast. Uh, Particularly the sort of elements in the the digital space that are becoming more and more important for us to serve the readers and indeed the listeners. So the digital, uh, so the the podcast, the daily, uh, the daily morning digest, which we all love doing, and it's so my favorite part uh, of the job. So so the uh, the opportunity to do you it just heard on, two lies on the <laughs> podcast. There, the opportunity to do it on a daily basis was something that we all jumped at, and the other big That's lie number three. The other big, um, I suppose, the other big innovation uh, that 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 we embarked on was the daily live blog which was manned manfully by uh, Harry for the vast majority uh, of the time and the feedback from those I suppose we do our own post-mortems in time but the feedback from those from listeners has been and, and readers has been very good of which we are keen to hear more well, I just had a flashback <laughs> to before Christmas turning around to you Pat and saying all right, for God's sake, let's just get this election done. Let's have an election. I had so much like energy and enthusiasm. And you just looked at me. You said something like, are you mad? 
and you kind of looked at me like as if to say, why did I hire this person? Like she is completely <laughs> bats. Um, but like that was, there was, a, for the last couple of years, nobody really believed the confidence and supply would last four and a half years. So we've all, we've always been kind of teetering on the edge, wondering is an election now, is an election now. But the fact of the matter is, there's actually only so much preparation that you can do. You can prepare your constituency profiles, you can do all that kind of stuff, you can have your ideas in your head, but when the election starts, when the, when the firing gun goes off, uh, you're kind of swept along with the, with the tide of it. You, you go along with it and you, you just do your best to keep up with everything, to be honest. So I didn't see any big red buttons being pressed anywhere. But 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 having said that, it is a, a big operation and it involves a lot of people and much wider than the political team. So we had all our yeah. feature writers coming in. We had our um, videography department who were doing some extraordinary... One of my favourite moments of the whole uh, election campaign was Endo Dowd's video and Carla Bryant did a wonderful piece accompanying it. Uh, where they went down to Dublin 8 and interviewed school kids down there about their ver- their verdict on the previous night's debate. And it was just amazing. He's saying all these promises now, but how do we, how do we know it's really going to happen? Yeah, he could be just saying that to get voted and then he doesn't even do any of it. Like, like that's what happened the last time. He's probably not the most famous, like, party like, person. But he's making a good point about like everything, and he has a nice tone in his voice. He's not too rude. He's not like too nice. Too nice. He just wants his voice heard, and that's all that matters. Gave us some great material for our opening sig tune on the on the daily podcast. It was just it was just it was wonderful to hear. Jennifer O'Connell went around the country, and she had a, a brief not to talk to politicians. Uh, but to talk to ordinary people. And that was an amazing series as well. And uh, I was listening to her, uh, her her contribution to the live podcast where she said something very important uh, because she was picking up when that mood for change, when that actually uh, deposited, or when Sinn Féin became the repository or the recipient of that mood for change. And she said she didn't sense it in the first few days. She knew that people wanted change. And then after a week, she heard Sinn Féin's uh, name and being brandished around and then suddenly it happened in a voluminous fashion. And that was very important to have that kind of information out there and to have that type of intel and that kind of ear to the ground, as it were. So there was lots of preparation. The other thing that that needs to be mentioned is uh, the the logistics that's involved in Count Day, uh, having people in all the centres, having a central uh, system that allows us to get counts up quickly, get them online quickly, to get news up quickly. That's extraordinary and that takes a lot of organisation from a lot of people within this uh, Irish Times. Hi Hugh, Tom here in London. Uh, I've enjoyed the pod for a while, uh, especially getting the Irish perspective on all the Brexit drama. Uh, In that vein, I wondered what the prospect of Sinn Féin in government will mean for uh, UK-Ireland relations. Uh, not only with regard to the upcoming negotiations over Brexit and trade, um, but especially the prospect of a border poll. Uh, thanks. Thanks for that, Tom. Obviously, that presupposes Sinn Féin in government. Uh, if not now, perhaps after the next election, when Brexit negotiations, uh, post-Brexit negotiations, I think, will still be going on. Would it change the Anglo-Irish temperature, the relationship? Yes. Sinn Féin, if we're, we're Sinn Féin to be in government and you've got to think if they're not in government after this election, then there's a pretty good chance they'll be in government in, after the election that follows uh, the next election. Um, the attitude towards the, the, the Irish government's entire position and attitude to Northern Ireland, uh, which has been settled, if, if not since the Good Friday Agreement, then probably before that, uh, going back as far as the Anglo-Irish Agreement in the 1980s, that whole position will change. 
if Sinn Féin are in government because one of that government's chief priorities, if not its number one priority, will be the project of unification. That is the purpose above all others for Sinn Féin of getting into government and of being in government north and south so that, for one example, Sinn Féin ministers are meeting at that party's monthly Lord Corla meetings. Sinn Féin ministers from both governments are meeting to discuss uh, the, the advancement of that project. And that will be a very big change uh, for Ireland's for, for Ireland facing uh, facing the UK and for Irish-UK relations, not just, I think, in how it relates to the North, but in the, the wider sense of those those relations. So uh, so that will be, a, yeah, that will be a very big change, I think, um, if it comes. Also, if you look at the, uh, the details in the exit poll, 57% of people said that they supported the holding of a border poll, but that doesn't necessarily translate into a vote for reunification at all. And there was a, I think there was a poll done last, it was either last August or last September um, in Northern Ireland, which showed kind of a statistical tie between detractors and those who supported the idea. Um, Whether it actually happens is the unknown question, but certainly the conversation will be had. And that's the point that Mary Lou MacDonald has made. The conversation will have to be had as opposed to always just presuming that there's not enough will for it there and therefore not to talk about it. And I think that's the phase that we're probably moving into now, the conversational phase. I mean, under the the Belfast Agreement, under the Good Friday Agreement, it is the responsibility of the British government to make that choice to hold a referendum. But I think one of the things that would change is that the Irish government would be constantly, that Sinn Féin was part of, would be constantly seeking for the British government to make that change. Uh, Which that would change. fundamentally change the dynamic of the yes, relationship between, between the two countries. OK, we move on to another question. It's kind of related because it also presumes, uh, it requires a bit of crystal ball gazing as well. Michael Ryan is asking, do you anticipate Michal Martin will be the Fianna Fáil party leader this time next year? And if so, can he continue to be leader as leader of the opposition? And if not, who are the frontrunners to replace him? That's a very difficult uh, question to answer. Uh, um, because um, if Fianna Fáil go into opposition for a third time, I think Micheál Martin's position would become increasingly precarious. There's no voice at the moment that's saying Micheál Martin must go. Um, But I I think that if they do go into opposition, I think there will be voices who will be uh, uh, eager and impatient uh, to to usher in a a new era. And Micheál Martin will be forever associated with uh, Fianna Fáil of the past. So I think they, the, there will be an imperative within Fianna Fáil to replace him uh, at some stage. I would find it very hard to see him remaining as, as leader of Fianna Fáil in opposition uh, for uh, a full term. And the, the uh, question about who is going to replace him is also uh, problematic because there isn't, unlike Fine Gael, where Leo Varadkar and Simon Coveney both emerged very strongly uh, uh, once Enda Kenny uh, stood down, there, there, there aren't, there isn't a a Bertie Ahern type figure, or a Charlie Hawhey type figure, or a George Colley type figure, a, a self evident replacement. There are some people within the parliamentary party who are excellent. Dara Kaleri, uh, the deputy leader, Jim O'Callaghan, the justice spokesman in Dublin, and uh, Michael McGrath, the finance spokesman, uh, all very highly uh, regarded. But do, do does that constitute them as leaders? For one reason or another, I, I think there are question marks that that uh, are associated with all. 
the person that I would have seen as a potential leader unfortunately lost her seat or unfortunately for her lost her seat uh, in Mayo uh, Lisa Chambers she would have been a, a, a it would have allowed the party to have a female leader it would allow the party to, to take somebody from a new generation somebody who was highly articulate and somebody who was very very good at her brief but she's gone now and I can't I, I can't see anybody from that particular generation emerging as a possible and successor should Mayo Martin step down he will be the first Fianna Fáil leader not to have, not to have become Taoiseach mm. yeah. probably not an accident of course that there is no obvious successor to Michal Martin. Explain that to me. <laughs> well, because I don't think he has promoted anyone to be his obvious successor in the way that Bertie Ahern chose Brian Cowan, uh, in the way that, uh, that, that, well, I suppose Jack Lynch didn't choose Charlie High, but there was two obvious contenders, one of which Lynch might, might have been more... Um, and Enda uh, Kenny allowed a, a new generation of senior Fine Gael ministers to rise up under him who ended up contesting He did. Leadership. You would have said, you know, five years before Enda Kenny left, you would have said, you know, there was four, already four possible contenders for the leadership at that stage, Brian Hayes, Lucinda Creighton, Leo Varadkar and Simon Coveney. You know, now you would say, looking across Fianna Fáil, you would say, as, as Harry has mentioned, Derek Leary, Jim O'Callaghan, Michael McGrath, maybe Niall Collins as well, none of whom, though, are kind of national, certainly none of whom are as well known as their Fianna Gael And I'm interested, are you blaming Micheál Martin for that? Because obviously it was an ongoing critique of the lack of strength on the, on the Fianna Fáil front bench and the fact that it seemed to be a one-man show at times, these solo press conferences and launches. Um, is this Micheál Martin's fault that he doesn't have a strong bench or a strong team around him? I think he has, he has chosen not to promote any obvious successor, both for reasons of party harmony, but also because the party was decimated in 2011. And his... You know, the Fianna Fáil, the poor result that Fianna Fáil has had in this election, notwithstanding, for Micheál Martin to bring them back and to be perhaps still the next Taoiseach is still an extraordinary turnaround from where the party was in 2011. Okay, one last quick buzzer round question to each of you. Um, I I might try and answer it myself, but I'm damn sure that one of you are going to give my answer before you do. Question from Suzanne Collins. Who was the biggest surprise who won a seat in this election? Jen. Oh, I've actually forgotten her name. I know that's so bad. Connie Cairns. No, 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 no. No, No, the Sinn Féin, um, the new Sinn Féin TD who took a holiday during the campaign. Patricia Ryan. Patricia Ryan, thank you. Um, I was really surprised at that because I don't think anyone's ever, I don't think I've ever heard of someone going on holidays and then getting like a massive vote like that. So that's mine. Harry? Well, any of the Sinn Féin uh, TDs who won, Violet Ann Rins, another one, um, uh, Rena Cronin in Kildare North, none of them were expected to be anywhere near a seat. But they, they did. There was a guy called Louis O'Hara in Galway who just stood, student, and uh, ended up getting over 7,000 votes. The one that surprises me of the incumbents is Carl Nolan in Leash Offaly. She was not expected to hold on to her seat. And somehow she did. And uh, did it without really the benefit of Sinn Féin because she's a former member of the party and didn't get that many transfers from Before it. Pat, with his wisdom of Solomon, gives us his answer. Can, can I ask, there's all these people we've never heard of who've been elected. And we had a, couple, a number of incidents in the run-up to the election when you had new uh, nominees of Fine Gael in particular who turned out to have views or things they'd said on social media or various other skeletons in their closet which caused all kinds of difficulties. I noticed that the the Clare candidate who has this wonderful kind of PG Woodhouse kind of name, a most unusual name for a um, for a, for a Sinn Féin candidate, her her tweets are now all blocked and protected. And I see some people on Twitter suggesting that the party party central have gone in and are doing some hoovering and cleaning and she, polishing. She, she expressed some uh, 
Lirli Rida like views on 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 the HPs on the HPV. Anti-vax, yeah, she's an anti-vax yeah. person for a long time, but she she's she's now saying that she's pro-vax. So I think they've gone back to ensure that she wasn't expressing uh, similar rogue views in relation to other topics. But you know, the elected representatives have been there for a long time can do it as well. Look at Michael Collins. Uh, calling um, uh, Shane Ross a scumbag, which I thought was a despicable thing for anyone to say about another politician. And I think his withdrawal was qualified and I think he should be ashamed of himself for saying that. And David Cullinan didn't cover himself in glory uh, with his uh, late night uh, after election uh, speech to, uh, uh, to, to his supporters in uh, Waterford. You know, so you don't have to be unelected uh, to make uh, pronouncements that are not very clever. Uh, but, but before I give my surprise the election, but on, on that point, I'm not sure how great a surprise it was to anyone to discover that Sinn Féin used to support the IRA and supports the memory of the, uh, the, the memory of the IRA. I would be surprised were there not other Sinn Féin celebrations at which the words up the ra were, were heard. But anyway, leaving that, uh, leaving that aside, my surprise if, of the election is again another uh, Sinn Féiner going back to my own home county of Tipperary where Martin Brown was elected. The Sinn Féin had been through a number of uh, prospective candidates which were dropped for one reason or another off the ticket. Their previous general election candidate got about 200 votes, I think, in the local elections last year. Couldn't get elected to the county council in Thurles. They hit upon Martin Brown, who's a long-time councillor from, uh, from Cashel. And, uh, of course, like all the other Sinn Féin candidates, he romped home. So, well done to him. And uh, we'll we'll see him as the new doll takes shape. And I already gave away my one because it was Holly Kearns, the Social, the social Democrat, winning uh, a seat in, in Cork South West, which wouldn't have seen... To my ignorant eye, perhaps wrongly, as particularly fertile ground for the Social Democrats. Although some people have pointed out since that there was always a strong Labour Party tradition in that part of the world, and that yeah, might have Michael McCarthy held a seat there. Well, yeah. she got in on the, on the wave of a huge amount of Sinn Fein transfers. Again, two thousand, three thousand, mm. massive. She was she came from way back in the race. Uh, and in fairness to her, she did. Very, she she won her council seat last year by one oh, vote. Yeah. You know, so and then people said you'll have no chance in the general election, and lo and behold, she's come and she has defied expectations. And it's kind of nice that her um, her partner, her boyfriend, is also a TD representing Fianna Fáil in that constituency. She pointed out herself that it was like, in her words, a bad rom com, and I could definitely see the film rights being snapped up for 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 that one. Okay, listen, we do have to leave it there. Um, we could do many more, but we don't have the time for. It. We'll do another Ask Me Anything in the not too distant future because I don't know about the rest of you, but I quite enjoy them anyway. Listen, That's the important thing. Hugh. That is always the important thing, Pat. Thank you very much to Pat, to Jen, and to Harry. Thanks very much to our producer Suzanne Brennan and JJ Vernon on the decks. Um, quite a lot of you who mailed in questions mentioned you were now Irish Times subscribers, which is really brilliant to hear. So thank you for that too. And if you haven't made that wise choice yet yourself, why not pop over now to irishtimes.com slash subscribe where you can get all our digital journalism for just one euro for the first month. That's irishtimes.com slash subscribe. Um, otherwise, you can get us on all the usual platforms. As I said, you can find us at irishtimes.com slash podcasts. You can mail us at politicspodcasts at irishtimes.com or you can find most of us on Twitter. Until the next time, thanks for listening.